Welcome back to Himang for the Internist. In this episode of the Solid Tumor series, we shall be discussing breast cancer screening and prevention. As internists, we find ourselves practicing screening and prevention for breast cancer at almost all annual physicals. Yet, it is not very often that we talk and understand the fundamentals of screening and referral for our population. We hope to schematize our approach to such screening and provide some tools for improving care of our patients being screened for breast cancer through this episode. Let's dive right in. I don't think a statement of numbers is needed to describe the problem statement for breast cancer globally. The one number that does bring joy, however, is the five-year survival rate for breast cancer, according to the SEER database, was 90.3% for the years 2011 to 2017, representing a true success story, a story of aggressive screening and prevention of this previously highly fatal cancer. Today, we have with us one of my first mentors in the United States and a phenomenal teacher, Dr. Erin Hofstadter. Dr. Hofstadter completed her residency at Mount Auburn Hospital and fellowship training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and helped to establish the Smilo Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program at Yale University in New Haven, where she sees patients at increased risk of breast cancer. Dr. Hofstadter, welcome to the show. We are very excited to have you with us today. Thank you very much. It's really lovely to be here with you. <laughs> and it's lovely to meet you in person, too, because I haven't done that since residency started. So I'm glad the show gave me an opportunity to see you. Likewise. <laughs> um, and then, Dr. Hofstadter, I've been, I have been personally very fortunate to experience your passion for breast cancer prevention. But I would love for you to share with our audience what inspired you to specialize in this particular field of oncology. My inspiration for oncology started in residency, really. I had had some patients, um, ironically with leukemia, that uh, I just really enjoyed taking care of. The relationship was very intense, um, meaningful to me. Uh, Fortunately, these patients did well, but I just knew that oncology was what I wanted to do. Uh, It was just so meaningful. as I entered fellowship, I, I too was influenced heavily by a mentor of mine, Dr. Nadine Tong, as well as Dr. Gerberg Wolf, an, another research mentor that I had. And both of these women were so inspirational to me, and they happened to take care of breast cancer patients. Rotating with them through their clinics, uh, really, I found it was my favorite uh, to take care of patients with breast cancer. Uh, the quality of the relationship, the vulnerability, the success rates uh, really resonated with me, um, and I loved to be able to take care of these patients for a really long time. Dr. Tung had a clinic of her own where she was uh, running the cancer genetics program and prevention program at Beth Israel Deaconess, and I, again, I just loved it, and I loved the concept of being able to prevent the cancer, not only treating the cancer, but to be able to prevent it from happening in the first place. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And you know the love your love for it is like it it resonates with with my passion for oncology and it also is very evident in the patient care that you do. So I'm glad that you shared this because our audience kind of is on the same page about loving what they do. 
but our audience also like comprises of like you know besides residents, PCPs, hospitalists, um, internists generally, and the term lifetime risk of breast cancer. Uh, comes up quite frequently in our discussions. Mm -hmm. So how would you, how could you explain this to us and what is a good way to navigate this question when it comes up in conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And so when thinking about lifetime risk of breast cancer, what first comes to mind is when you're thinking about risk for your patient, it's you want to think about categorizing them into one of three categories, average risk, moderate risk, or high risk of breast cancer. And there aren't necessarily any strict definitions, but typically average risk, lifetime risk of breast cancer in an average patient is a lifetime risk of approximately 12 to 13%. That refers to risk that starts, say, about age 30, which lasts all the way until roughly age 80. So that 12 to 13% applies over a 50-year time period. So when you think about a lifetime, you think about a, the span of a woman's life, correct? Mm -hmm. um, moderate risk is, we tend to think about as a lifetime risk between say 15 to less than 20%, whereas high risk would be considered a lifetime risk of say 20 to 25% or higher. So those rough categories. The reason it's important to categorize patients into one of these categories is because it guides you in terms of what, you, what options you might have in terms of screening options and prevention options, be it mammograms, should you consider a prevention medication, should you think of something even as extreme as prophylactic mastectomies for your patients. So the reason to categorize them in the first place is to guide you as the, as the provider about how you might want to care for those patients. I think the other key point about lifetime risk of breast cancer is that it changes over time. So the risk I might quote a woman who is say 50 years old would be different than the risk I might quote somebody who's 75 years old. By definition, a 75 year old woman has lived through the bulk of her quote unquote lifetime risk, whereas a woman who's say 40 has much, much of her risk still ahead of her. So every patient is unique, every patient is an N of one, and you ultimately uh, should tailor your care uh, based on pros and cons for that individual patient. Makes sense. And then speaking about these lifetime risk and the percentages, how is that calculated? It's a great question. Um, and the exact calculation of risk is less important than, and, than appreciating what category of risk they're in. However, there are two key calculators that I use in my practice every day to help, again, guide my patient to understanding what their risk might be and what those options might be. The first model that's most applicable, I would say, in a primary care setting is what we call the breast cancer uh, risk assessment tool that comes out of the NIH and NCI. It's available online for free and is also commonly known as the Gale model. This model has been used for decades and really helped to do risk assessment for the very early, early breast cancer prevention trials, the P1 trial, for example, to help calculate both a five-year short-term risk of breast cancer as well as a lifetime risk of breast cancer, in this case to age 90. It takes into account certain risk factors for the patient, including patient age, um, presence of breast atypia, uh, age at pregnancy, age at menses, and a very rudimentary, very simplistic assessment of family history. 
This model is best used for your patient who may be pretty much at average risk, not a lot of risk factors, and just wants to get a sense of how she may compare to her peers, and really should only be used on those patients with either no family history or perhaps a, a weak family history, if you will. Mm-hmm. The, it's a very useful model. I incur, It's especially useful for those women who may have had breast atypia, like atypical ductal hyperplasia, for example, because those women may be in a more uh, increased risk, and it can help guide you. The second important model that I use all the time is the model called the IBIS risk model, otherwise known as the tier cusick model. This model is really best suited for those women who have a very strong family history of breast cancer. And you're trying to determine are they, is, does that family history suggestive enough that they may need enhanced screening like MRI, for example. So to, to recap, if you will, the Gale model, otherwise known as the breast cancer risk assessment tool is the one online. You could even Google like Gale model and it will <laughs> pop up for you. Um, yeah. It's really most applicable in the primary care setting. But if you've got a patient with a strong family history, um, certainly genetic testing, which I know we'll talk about, but also this IBIS risk model is most appropriate. I see. Okay, that's good to know. And I a lot of questions stem out of just this conversation alone. But I'm going to try and stick to the first question that I feel is pertinent for our PCP population, that as a primary care physician, we're often the first point of contact for a patient. And they share with us their personal, their family history. So what is a good schema uh, that you would suggest that we run down through to identify you know, a patient with a moderate to a, like a higher risk individual? Absolutely. Um, to the really lowest hanging fruit to identify those patients who are at highest risk of breast cancer is really driven by collecting a good family history. Mm-hmm. I know a, a, a lot of uh, busy, busy uh, internal medicine practices, primary care practices, you have very little time. So one good way to capture this is to have a structured questionnaire, if you can, in the waiting room or online to capture a family history um, of cancer or other um, unusual, uh, you know, uh, developmental delays, uh, other features that appear to be running in your family. But very simplistically, the idea is that you capture cancer history from three generations if possible. So the patient, their siblings, parents, children, aunts and uncles, even grandparents and cousins, to be able to to, uh, draw a pedigree, a three-degree pedigree, captures enough of the family history, again, on both sides of the family, not only the mom's side, but also the dad's side, Mm -hmm. to start picking up patterns of cancer that may be there in the family. Many patients uh, don't think about breast cancer as coming potentially from the paternal side of the family, but these genetics are gender neutral. They are inherited in an autonomic way so that, uh, again, a, a BRCA mutation, for example, can be inherited either from the mother or the father. So it's important to capture both sides. Um, so certainly capturing a family history is important uh, for uh, you know, assessing risk in, the, in, in your patient. You should also understand their personal history. Obviously, if your patient has had a cancer, they themselves, particularly breast cancer, ovarian cancer, other cancers that they themselves may have, say prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer, uh, may be clues that there could be a genetic syndrome running in the family, particularly if those cancers have occurred at a young age, like under the age of 50, certainly under the age of 45. A personal history of breast atypia, as I mentioned earlier, a personal history of uh, atypical ductal hyperplasia or a, a personal history of lobular carcinoma in situ or LCIS 
if your patient has one of uh, has had a biopsy showing one of those features, that may also suggest that they're at moderate or increased risk of breast cancer outside of a genetic syndrome. Um, and certainly having had a prior breast cancer puts you at risk for a second. So again, uh, breast cancer survivors may, be care- may, may need to be care- uh, followed more carefully as well. Hmm. I see. Okay, that's good to know. So that's like a pretty comprehensive list of questions that we should have ready to identify yeah. these patients. Um, and, you know, we talked about the, the risk assessment models and talked about uh, the individuals identifying the moderate to higher risk individuals. At what point do we refer a patient for uh, specifically for a program like the one that you have helped build up at New Haven, like a genetic counseling program? That's a great question, and it, I wish the answer was simple. <laughs> right now, the guidelines that drive us, at least here in the United States, is from the NCCN, or the National uh, Comprehensive Cancer Network. Uh, they have very specific guidelines in terms of which of those patients or family members should be identified for referral for genetic counseling and testing. I would say, simply put, mm-hmm. um, any if a person or a close family member has been diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 50 or certainly under the age of 45, that would be reason alone uh, to send that patient. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, certain cancer types at any age, such as ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, and it tends to be aggressive prostate cancer, like a Gleason 7 or higher, or certainly metastatic prostate cancer, elements in in your patient or their close family members would, again, be reason to send uh, for counseling. In general, any cancer in in the patient or their family under the age of 50, in general, even if it's outside of one of those types I mentioned, again, would be reason enough to, to consider referral. There are certain ethnicities that tend to have a higher prevalence of BRCA1 and 2 or other mutations, and this includes Ashkenazi Jews. Most uh, people don't realize that, uh, again, BRCA1 and BRCA2 are genes that when you inherit a mutation, it puts you at very, very high risk of breast and ovarian cancer. In fact, the breast cancer risk approaches 85% lifetime risk in some patients. And the average person walking around, the risk of having one of these mutations is about one in roughly 250 or so. Among Ashkenazi Jews, it's one in 40. So it's important to understand the ethnicity of your patient as well and understand their personal and family history. Certain types of breast cancer are also a red flag uh, for potentially sending your patient. So triple negative breast cancer, meaning estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 receptor negative also tends to track with BRCA1 mutations. And so if your patient or their close family member has had triple negative breast cancer under the age of 60, again, that would be reason alone uh, to send them for referral. And then I guess lastly, I would say, when in doubt, just send your patient. <laughs> um, the, the list I've given you now is, is hardly comprehensive. There's so many cancer syndromes outside of BRCA1 and 2, certain colon cancer syndromes. There's, there's, there's so much out there. When in doubt, uh, send your patient or, or, or get in touch with your local genetic counselors. There's so much that can be done online now, and cost for genetic testing has come way down, uh, even in the last five years. Um, so when in doubt, just, just send your patient. Okay, so just to summarize, uh, as a primary care physician, when yep. a patient comes into the clinic, yep. I look at you know their ethnicity, yep. I try and identify if this is an Ashkenazi Jew, then definitely talk to them about the cancer risk or 
or just like get a good history about their personal and family history of cancer. Mm -hmm. And then if they, you know, if they're not one of those red flag ethnicities, then at least at that point, we start with the personal history of like atypical ductal hyperplasia or breast atypia in general, or any, any cancer, mostly like breast, ovarian, pancreatic, uh, prostate, less than the age of 50 and definitely less than 45. And, um, and then taking a good family history on both sides of the pedigree mm-hmm. up to up to a third degree or up to like three generations up Correct. Correct. yeah so at that point if any of these patients are clearly screening out to be higher risk refer them and then we use the out of the two models in a, in a primary care setting the gale model and if they are scoring more than a 15 20% surely at that point we refer them Yeah, I think that would be reasonable. Yeah, that's a good summary. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. That's good. Um, So, okay. So now that we have our our average risk individual in our clinic, um, what would be the age appropriate screening approach to practice for this individual? For the average risk patient? This is a complicated question. Um, It is the age to get mammograms, how often to get mammograms has been hotly debated for years. Depending on the data set you look at, um, most data suggests that mammograms can save lives. However, the absolute benefit from mammogram varies depending on the age of the patient. Because, the, at least in the United States, the median age of diagnosis of breast cancer in this country is 62. The window of time that breast cancer is most likely to occur in at least a U.S. female is between the ages of 50 and 70. Cancer is a disease of aging. Every kind of disease is a, is a disease of aging, but cancer is no exception. So some of the debate is, should we be obtaining mammograms in patients who are, say, 40 or younger? Is that, is, what, do the pros outweigh the cons? Well, what are the pros? The pros of starting mammogram at age 40, even in an average risk individual, and continuing it annually, the pros obviously would be early detection because the treatments that are available for breast cancer when caught early tend to be easier to manage and tend to be more effective, and cure is our goal with as little morbidity as possible. The trouble is the likelihood of a 40-year-old average woman to develop breast cancer in, say, the next five years is only about 1%. So most 40-year-olds undergoing mammogram won't have breast cancer. They won't have a, they, they, you won't find anything on their mammogram. But the trouble is that many will be called back for a false positive. And some of those false positives can even lead to a biopsy. So the argument against aggressive screening is, is again, this idea of false positivity, that you're, you're asking women to undergo potentially invasive biopsies for really no gain in life. So that is the push and pull, um, which is why you have to have, your, have the conversation with your patient about um, you know, exactly that pro, that pro and con. The other, bi- the, other, the other downside is that when a cancer is found, the type of breast cancer that, that, that can be found um, often is a type called DCIS, or ductal carcinoma in situ, which does not tend to be a life-threatening cancer. In fact, it really isn't life-threatening. If left alone, certainly can, it can evolve to an invasive breast cancer, but only about half tend to evolve to be an invasive breast cancer. And there's this concept of overtreatment. So we've talked about overdiagnosis and overtreatment. We've talked about false positives. And so 
Um, mm-hmm. Mammograms <laughs> certainly aren't perfect. Yeah. Um, that said, if you happen to catch a cancer in that 40-year-old woman, she has so many years of highly functioning life ahead of her that my bias is that the pros outweigh the cons. One other point I'll make is that many women are afraid of the radiation from a mammogram. The, the truth is, uh, uh, the amount of radiation that a woman might receive from a single mammogram is the same as the radiation that she might receive undergoing a cross-country flight from, say, New York to Los Angeles. Oh, that's so interesting. It's, yeah, it's an oh. interesting little fact, right? So it's not zero, but it is negligible in the course of a woman's life. So I, I don't find that that exposure to radiation is a, a legitimate argument against the mammogram. I see. Okay, so you recommend starting or at least talking about yes. everything with the patient at the age of 40. I do. I, I would say the discussion should start at age 40. Certainly the discussion should be informed by that patient's values. Also the, the medical aspects of her care, like family history, for example. Mm-hmm. But I, I personally recommend starting the conversation at 40, considering starting annual mammogram at age 40, uh, but at least 45 and continuing it annually until the age of 75, and then continue beyond that uh, based on a patient's overall health. Mm-hmm. Um, other guidelines I will point out, some suggest starting at age 50, others suggest doing it annually at 50, other guidelines suggest doing it every other year. Literally, there's probably 14 different guidelines <laughs> on how to choose mammograms <laughs> for your patients. Yeah. Again, you have to understand what risk category am I putting this patient in, uh, is there any reason I might want to start earlier, say based on family history um, or other features, and then uh, tailor it to the needs of your patient? Makes sense. But again, my bias is annually starting at 40. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Good to know. And then I know that you know we're considering at this point that we have referred our moderate to high risk population to a genetics program. But a lot of places don't have these programs. So it is still the internist you know, managing these patients. So how does it change? How do these guidelines change for those patients? That's a great question. So uh, just to, as, a, as a baseline, your average risk woman, once you start mammograms, again, generally is a mammogram every, every year, uh, you know, once a year. For moderate and high-risk individuals, the consideration is, does any supplemental imaging need to be done on top of or in addition to that annual mammogram? The modality that comes to mind most often is the use of MRI, breast MRI. The guidelines in the United States for the use of MRI are based on two things. One is if a person has a known mutation in a highly penetrant you know, gene mutation like a BRCA1 or BRCA2, uh, other genetic mutations those patients benefit from a supplemental screening such as breast MRI. And that additionally is done once a year, such that a woman who's at high risk, obvious high risk from a genetic syndrome, let's say, would get a once a year mammogram and a once a year breast MRI. Often we stagger these by six months so that there's some imaging of the breast occurring every six years. Again, these are for patients with known genetic mutations or lifetime risk that's greater than say 20 or 25%. When you have a genetic mutation, that tends to be pretty clear. What's hard is when you have a patient with a family history. How do you know what that patient's lifetime risk is? And it is not obvious. This is where that IBIS risk model, that Tierracusic model comes in where I mentioned earlier. This too is available free online. Again, if you Google IBIS risk model or Tierracusic risk model, you, you can often find one. 
it takes a very detailed family history and incorporates some other features, but it's that model that we use when you have a lifetime risk greater than 20 to 25% based on that calculator is when MRI tends to be recommended uh, and again is done on an annual basis. Insurance does want to know, want to see that number. So again, it's not going to, you're not going to be sitting in your office and, and, realize the person's at XYZ percent, <laughs> yeah. this is when you really want to apply that calculator. Um, again, there's nothing that a high-risk, it's not limited to a high-risk clinic. A, a, an internist um, absolutely uh, can apply this model. Just it's a matter of, of searching for it and, and playing with it so that you can get used to it. Now, I will, the other thing I will say is that, you know, so MRI tends to be reserved for the patients at highest, highest risk, as I mentioned. Moderate risk, again, I don't know that you necessarily need to escalate to MRI if that, if that lifetime risk is not quite 20%. But the other modality that's important to consider, regardless of risk, is breast ultrasound. Many internists have heard about breast density, which refers to the quality of the mammogram. Mammograms are basically x-rays, right? And so glandular tissue shows up as white, but cancer shows up as white. So if you're looking for a white cancer on a white background, the mammogram will be of lower yield. Ultrasound can be very helpful in this setting, such that if a woman has either heterogeneous or extremely dense tissue, I would advise adding an, an ultrasound, a screening breast ultrasound on the same day as that mammogram so that you get a good picture regardless of risk. I see. Okay. Thank you. That was that was a really great information because actually we struggle with that. At least I struggle with that on my clinic days quite a bit when I'm like, you know, screening a woman and talking about all of this becomes all loosey goosey. So that's good for putting it down. Uh, but then using this also as a segue, we talked about different modalities and I do want to focus on mammograms a little bit more. The different forms of mammographies, so kind of wanted you to shed some light on what they are and what the difference is between their usage. Yeah, so this too has become a really interesting, exciting topic, advance if you will, in the last few years. And really what the difference is, is when I think about 2D mammogram versus 3D mammogram. And 3D mammogram is often referred to as tomosynthesis. The difference is exactly as it sounds. 2D mammogram is essentially flat x-rays, flat pictures from three different angles that the radiologist will look at uh, to, to look for breast cancer. 3D or tomosynthesis takes many, many more pictures, almost almost like a CAT scan, where you can scroll through the, the computer-generated or the, the computer-reconstructed images, literally scrolling through, um, similar to, to CAT scan imaging. It has been shown to be more sensitive and more specific, so there's fewer false positives, but there's, there's a higher accuracy rate uh, for those women who ultimately do have cancer. It is not associated with a significant increase in radiation risk. Um, you still do have the compression, so comfort-wise, it's about the same for your patient, but it is a more accurate uh, modality. Certainly for women with dense tissue, it's not a substitute necessarily for ultrasound, but 3D mammogram, I, I would say, is superior in quality um, for patients compared mm. to 2D. So in most situations where both are available, we should always go for a 3D. Yes, absolutely. Got it. Makes sense. Um, and then, you know, speaking of the other modalities, you touched about the MRI and the ultrasound, but I had a question, like a like quick detour from our general conversation, but what about women with implants? How do we screen them? That's a great question. So women with implants 
most women will have an implant for breast augmentation. So they will have their natural breast tissue and then will additionally have uh, an implant on top of that. It may be, it, oftentimes it's behind the muscle, um, but this should not preclude women from getting breast imaging. They should still undergo mammogram. Um, and again, for those women at increased risk, they might, cons- they again, might need ultrasound or MRI based on those same th- guidelines we said before. So having implants does not preclude you. Um, it, implants do not cause cancer. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a slight risk, depending on the implant, that it could hide a cancer. But again, with 3D imaging, a missed cancer with an implant is, is quite rare. Mm-hmm. So um, I, a lot of people say if you have an implant, you can't get a mammogram, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. So the other situation that uh, women may have implants is if they've had breast cancer and they've had mastectomies with implant reconstruction, um, or it, they've had mastectomy done in a prophylactic way. Imaging in that sense is not necessarily done for breast cancer screening. It's done to look at the implant itself and the viability of the implant. Um, once you've had a mastectomy, there's literally no breast tissue left to screen aside from doing a clinical exam. So the, the imaging that we get for women who have had mastectomies with implants are for those women who have silicone implants, we can get an occasional ultrasound or non-contrast breast MRI just to make sure that the silicone implant is intact. But in those situations, if a woman's had a saline implant, you don't, you don't do any imaging anymore. That's one of the advantages of having a mastectomy is that imaging in that sense is, is done for that patient. Oh, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It is interesting. And now I feel very silly because I had a patient four weeks ago with a, yeah. with a saline implant. Yeah. And then I made her go for a mammogram. No, never feel okay. silly. Did she have a mastectomy with a she saline did. implant? She did. She had a DCIS okay. like yeah. 40 years, oh, not 40, but like 20 years ago. Yeah. And then a saline implant. Yeah. And then I was like, no, no, no. We still got to go screen you. Well, that's the purpose of this, right? Like, you're never yeah. wrong to send someone, right? Like, yeah. you don't need to apologize for sending her. Um, but fortunately, going forward, you can say, guess what? Good news. You know, um, it's really only the silicone implants um, that need any imaging from time to time. And remember, I wouldn't necessarily get an em- a mammogram in that patient, but I would send her back in a couple of years just for either non-contrast MRI or ultrasound just to check. Um, well, no, she's saline, so she doesn't need yeah, any of that. Nothing. So she's good. That's, see, I just got myself confused there for a moment. No, she's good. She's good. All right. She's good. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> and, you know, you, you mentioned clinical exam. Yeah. And that really is, I think, my last question for you. And while I was here training with you, you showed me how to do the Scarpville fashion of breast exam and then taught patients on a model how to do a breast exam. And all of that I have practiced in my in my clinical practice with every every animal physical that I get. But at the same time, I want you to shed some light on your opinion. Uh, I know different people have different opinions, but what's your opinion on, on doing and conducting a clinical exam on a clinic visit? I still think that doing an, a, a clinical breast exam on a patient is still valuable. Uh, and I, I, again, my bias is that it should still be done. Um, recalling that a clinical breast exam is about covering the breast tissue, but also the supra and infraclavicular lymph nodes, as well as the axilla. Again, these are areas that the patient may or may not be paying attention to um, with their own exams. I think it's an opportunity to remind your patient about um, their own anatomy, doing their own exam. Um, and, and I confess, I think it's it has. I can count on one hand the number of breast cancers that I detected personally in my high risk clinic just from doing a clinical exam. Most of the time, it's either from imaging 
or the patient felt the mass themselves. So if we blow it off in clinic, the patients will blow it off. And mm-hmm. unless the patients are really checking themselves, at least occasionally, it may be a missed opportunity for a patient to present to you feeling a mass. I, I think it's all about um, understanding, the patient understanding their own anatomy and feeling empowered to bring it to your attention. And if we aren't taking it seriously, my fear is that they won't take it seriously either. The data that suggests that it's not useful is citing the fact that clinical exams have not been proven to extend life. But I think it's a similar argument with the mammograms is that yes, it's about mortality, but it's also about morbidity. It's about quality of life, not just quantity of life. And the earlier you can catch that breast cancer, the easier the treatment will be. So I, I, I cringe a little bit when everything all the data boils down to the only screening modalities should be about is, is if it makes the patient live longer, but there's, there's, there's more to life than death. Well. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, that's such a good thing to say and also a great point to end at. Um, so this has been an excellent show, Dr. Hofstadter. Thank I have you. learned a lot from you always. And I can, you know, I can, I can keep listening to your talk. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I, I recognize that we should call it a day. And I can, I can always, um, I hope to invite you for more future shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been so much fun. Thank you for uh, hosting me today. And I, I hope the internists listening and, and primary care uh, providers that are listening um, uh, learn something new. Thank you so much again. It was great to have you. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody. Until next time. (laughs) So even though we said our goodbyes, let's let's do a few take-home points from this episode. When a patient comes to our clinic, we should try and make an effort to to categorize the patient into average, moderate, or high-risk individual. And this can be done using two basic models, the Gale model and the IBIS model. The Gale model is particularly helpful when the patient has a personal history of breast atypia or something of that nature. And the IBIS model is more helpful when you're trying to build in a family history of breast cancer. Once this characterization has been done, we can take care of an average risk individual by doing annual mammograms starting at the age of 40 and there can be a shared discussion with the patient about this. The guidelines do differ, but the expert opinion is to start at the age of 40 if possible. For moderate to high-risk individuals, MRI and ultrasounds are also useful. The MRIs are typically staggered at every six months with the mammograms so that the patient's screening is not missed for an entire year. Within these modalities, we are also talking about the different kinds of mammograms and we should ideally go for a 3D mammogram if it is available. When it comes to doing clinical breast exams, uh, Dr. Hofstadter recommends doing it so that the patient also understands the value of it and just staying staying in sync uh, with their own body and anatomy. And that in a nutshell is all we talked about, but there's a lot more to come. So until next time, have a great day guys. Bye-bye.